This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We haven't talked about uh, LRT in a while, so let's give it a go. The motion for the HSR to run the LRT in Hamilton has passed. Only two councillors that were present voted it against it. That was uh, Aidan Johnson and Robert Pursuta. Uh, it seems kind of odd at the end of the day because I'm not sure exactly how much weight all of this carries, and I think it's more politics than anything. To talk more about all of this, Ryan McGreal is with us. Editor, raise the hammer, and on the line now. Hello, Ryan. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Hi, Scott. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, so are you surprised by this vote uh, by council to go ahead and, and, and see what happens with this? Well, I mean, I'm not surprised only because... I watch, you know, I, I saw the General Issues Committee last week vote on this. Um, it's a little surprising for the issue to come up at all this late in the process. Uh, I, I think the best time to have had this conversation was a couple of years ago before the city and Metrolink signed the memorandum of agreement on actually uh, building and provisioning the LRT system. So that agreement um, makes it very clear that Metrolink is going to own this LRT system. They're responsible for uh, provisioning it, designing it, constructing it, operating it, maintaining it, the whole thing. And Metrolinx normally follows, um, it's a, a public-private partnership model, a P3 model. So uh, what they do is, is uh, they put out a contract for a consortium to come in, and the contract is to design, build, finance, operate, and maintain the system. Now, in a city like Toronto, where the TTC already has experience running a rapid transit system, they will do a design, build, finance, maintain contract and have the TTC operate it. Um, their position has been that for a city that doesn't have rapid transit experience, um, that they want the operation to go to an experienced consortium that's, you know, that's large and established enough that they can build and operate and maintain the whole system as a, as a whole package. Now, Metrolinx will own the system uh, permanently, and the contract is basically to build it and then operate it for 30 years. So I guess I'm not a huge fan of public-private partnerships. There's some arguments for them and some arguments against them. Uh, one of the nice things about this particular model is that the same company that built it also has to operate it. So they actually have an incentive not to cut corners when they're building the thing. So your likelihood of a situation like what happened with our stadium becomes much reduced because if they cut corners or if things aren't being done properly, they have to own that down the road. Uh, if you take operation out of that, or if you take maintenance out of that, it changes the economics of the, the build a little bit. And, uh, and there's some, you know, possible potential there. Um, in terms of having, uh, HSR employees operate the system, I think that's a great idea in principle. I have no problem with it. I'm concerned about the idea that LRT would be overseen by city council though, because, uh, city council has a 30 year track record of not doing a very good job of managing and properly funding transit in the city. So if this is going to work, those HSR um, employees would have to be somehow directly accountable to Metrolinx. Um, will this vote have any weight with Metrolinx? I mean, is this a moot point? Well, ultimately, you know, Metrolinx has policies that they adhere to, uh, you know, and they are an arm's length uh, crown agency. But fundamentally, the purse strings for this project are being held uh, very clearly by the Ontario government. This is ultimately a political issue, and it's going to be the politicians who make the final decision on whether Metrolinx is going to, to kind of bite and go along with this. The, the danger, and it's a significant political risk, is that if they decide, okay, we're going to have the HSR operate LRT, then what happens is if you go back to this past February, Metrolinx put out what's called a request for proposals which essentially uh, they're inviting consortia 
to come in and explain why they should be allowed to bid on this project. So the qualification process is Metrolinx looks through the various submissions they get and they evaluate those companies to decide, okay, is this company large enough? Are they established enough? Do they have the experience? Do they have a good track record that we think that this will be a successful contract? From that, they develop a short list of actual bidders. Then they are invited to submit a uh, proposal to build and operate the system under a uh, request for proposals or RFP system. The RFP is supposed to be going out now. But if we decide that we want to take operation and maintenance out of the contract, then that request for qualifications is null and void. We have to start over. That means we lose at least four months of lead time. Then you get into a situation where we're not going to be able to sign a contract to build this until after the June 2018 provincial election. Then LRT all of a sudden becomes a political football, and it's in play during that election once again. Uh, what about so at this point, uh, this group wants the HSRT to run and and operate operate and maintain uh, the LRT. What about does this mean they they just want uh, uh, the right to do that, or do they want the right to bid like everybody else is doing it? But then again, they really can't place a bid with everybody else because it would be a different deal. Well, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you would have you would. I mean, unless the you know the HSR is already sort of one of the partners in a consortium that has been shortlisted, then in order to have them participate, you would have to redo the request for qualifications. My understanding from the, the um, so it's the ATU, Amalgamated uh, Transit Union Local 107, which is the local that represents HSR employees, they launched a Keep Transit public campaign uh, maybe a couple of months ago in the beginning of the summer. Uh, you know, they waited until after the big, um, you know, uh, council vote that everybody remembers and is still traumatized by over the environmental project report. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, but I remember yeah. talking to them, though, Ryan, and they said that uh, we were they were told that they couldn't do anything until this point in the discussion. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure about what they may have been told. I mean, that, you know, they're a union. They can sort of say and do whatever they want. Um, you know, so, so you have to draw a distinction between the HSR, which is, you know, an organization within the city of Hamilton, and the ATU, which is the union that represents the workers. It's the ATU that's making this push. And what they're saying is that HSR employees, or at a minimum, public employees, ought to be operating and maintaining LRT. In principle, I think that makes perfect sense. I'm not opposed to it at all. The problem is that the right time to have had this discussion, the best time to have had it, would have been two years ago when the council was signing its memorandum of agreement with Metrolinx on the terms of how this project would be provisioned. You know, now it means if we change our minds, you know, I mean, council has, you know, obviously they've made the vote now. They've said, so they're formally going to ask Metrolinx, can you please take operation and maintenance out of the contract and let HSR operate and maintain the line? If Metrolinx, I mean, Metrolinx can tell us to pound salt if they want. According to the memorandum agreement, it's entirely up to them to decide how they how they want to provision the line. Uh, so, so is this an HSR issue or is it a union issue? Because even if it was run by Metrolinx, it can still be unionized, can't it? Well, sure. And if the operation and maintenance was directly run by Metrolinx, and and those Metrolinx employees are unionized, I don't think the ATU would have a problem with that. My understanding is that for them, it's a principled stand that they're taking in support of making sure that the employees who do the work are public employees. So the work is going to be unionized no matter what. I mean, the the kinds of companies that build and maintain LRT systems, these are big established transportation companies that have unionized workforces. 
So it's going to be a unionized workforce no matter what. The question is, will they be public employees or not? That's the kind of philosophical or the, the ideological issue that's, that's at hand here. Uh, where is the premier on this? From what I understand, she's open to these discussions. Yeah, so I guess the, the premier and uh, uh, MPP Ted McMeekin, um, you know, kind of spoke about this a little bit. Uh, I can't remember whether it was earlier this week or last week. And, uh, you know, the premier said, you know, we're open to having this kind of conversation. Uh, you know, McMeekin maybe was a little more guarded in his comments. Uh, ultimately, this is a political decision. The liberals are going to have to decide, are they willing to take the risk that by uh, taking operation maintenance out of the contract, reissuing a request for qualifications, that means now LRT won't be assigned contract before the June 2018 election. The other thing that's... that's sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, that's a significant political risk. And if they do that, they risk um, an incoming government with a different set of, of investment priorities tearing up that project and saying, you know what, it's done. We don't have the money. You know, you use the stadium as, ex- stadium as an example, Ryan, but, you know, here, here's uh, another great example of, you know, the, ta- the city wanting to be a part of something when, again, the whole idea is if you make these people build it, be accountable for it, pay for it, and run it, they're committed to it from beginning to end and then into operation, whereas the other, wa- other way, y- you simply don't. So what is the advantage for all of this? What is in it for the city to have HSR run it? Well, I mean, there are... Because all I hear is more cost. Well, I mean, the, the, the issue of... So, so when you have an LRT system, there are going to be operational costs, and there's also going to be operational revenues. And we don't know exactly what those are going to be right now, because based on the procurement model, we're waiting for bids to come in from Consorti to say, we will operate this for X million dollars a year. And, you know, uh, you pay us that much money. And then the city and uh, Metrolinx will negotiate, okay, this is how we're going to split the operational costs. And then this is how we're going to split the operational revenues. You know, a lot of LRT systems are actually operating profitable, which means they bring in more revenue than it costs to operate. That's potentially a situation we could end up with in Hamilton. So it's so we have to look at the costs and the revenues. And that's a negotiation that has to happen between the city and Metrolinx. And it's going to have to happen no matter what. So that doesn't really change things. The one thing that does change is that if you take operation and maintenance out of the contract, uh, any company that comes forward to build it, that capital cost is going to be higher now. And we don't know exactly how much higher. But part of what's going to keep the capital cost down is knowing that you're going to have an operating revenue stream for the next 30 years. You take that away, you change the economics of who's interested in bidding for this. Well, it's a fascinating discussion, Ryan, because, you know, why are private companies even involved? Well, they're involved because they have revenue, they have capital that the municipalities and the governments don't have. And again, if we had been contributing to this for the last 30 or 40 years, maybe we wouldn't be in the state that we are now. But the point is, without involving the private sector, there just isn't the cash to do these projects, is there? Oh, I, I, I'd be inclined to disagree with that. I mean, what the, the model of a public-private partnership is, it's, it's, in a way, it's kind of an ingenious uh, way of borrowing money to uh, build a large capital infrastructure project, which is the best reason to borrow money, and keeping that off the books. Right. So with, yep. a, with a design, build, finance, operate, maintain contract, the government is actually contracting out to the consortium yep. to borrow the money. So for the government, this is an operating cost. Right. We pay so much money to this consortium right. every year for the, to operate the contract. I mean, we're still the money is still being borrowed. It's still being paid back, but it goes on the books as an operating cost. It doesn't go on the books as a debt.
That's the, that's the main issue. And then what governments get in exchange for that, uh, aside from you know our, our debt numbers looking smaller, is that they get uh, stability and predictability in how much that cost is going to be. Generally, uh, P3 models, there's a, a, a fairly small cost premium compared to building it entirely in-house. But what you're getting in exchange for that cost premium is you're getting a, a guarantee and you're getting stability in how much you're going to pay. Hmm. Uh, what do you think Metrolinx is going to say about all this? Uh, I don't ultimately think it's up to Metrolinx. I mean, it's up to the province. It's up to the government. And I, I couldn't tell you how they're going to land on this. You know, on the one hand, you know, they want to make sure that they have a good relationship with the unions going into next year's election. And this becomes uh, a potential uh, flashpoint, you know, a way to drive a wedge between the Liberal Party and the unions. They have to decide what are the political costs of, of going along with it? What are the political costs of alienating the ATU and potentially other unions? It's a question that I don't have enough information to answer, but I'm looking forward to seeing what they come up with. The fact that the province is paying the freight for this whole thing, unlike Kitchener or some of the other municipalities, what sort of fa- how does that factor into all this? Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, really, it's it's a little bit cheeky in a way that we're kind of demanding that... Uh, I was kind of going to say that, Ryan, but <laughs> yeah, don't you think? I mean, geez, how many times do we have to bite off our, our fingers here? Sure, we have we, we have no skin in the game. We've, we've, we're not putting in any of the capital cost, and so uh, you know it's a little rich to sort of to demand a situation where we don't we don't uh, take on any of the costs, we don't take on any of the risk, but we want all the benefit. And you know, is that a politically realistic position? Certainly, council has been acting as though they have a strong bargaining position uh, vis-a-vis the government, and uh, so far they've been correct. So. Uh, I'm not willing to rule them out on this issue either, um, you know. And I'm not against the initiative. I have some real fears and I have some concerns about the impact it might have on whether the project actually goes ahead. You know, this could become a political sacrificial lamb if uh, if we run out of time and if the government changes hands next year. And again, I mean, at, at this point in time, I'm not against this. It's just I don't see the point of it. I don't see what advantage it is uh, to the city, I guess. And, and like you say, it turns out to be a moneymaker. But then again, you're doing, you're contracting this out for other people to run. So it's not like you don't have a say in uh, in, in what's going on. Um, uh do you think this council is just playing lip service here? Do you think they're just, you know what, this is going to get blown out anyway, just vote for it, make it look like we're doing something and, you know, answering all the questions and, and knowing it will go nowhere? Because, I mean, even Mayor Fred and, and Councillor Ferguson are, are shrugging at this one. It's entirely possible. I mean, this, they may see this as a ceremonial um, position to take in support of the HSR. Uh, and, and, and if so, I mean, fair play. You know, sometimes you, you vote on principle whether or not it's going to make a difference, you know, and, you know, you, you take a chance that maybe it will. Uh, I mean, like I said, it's entirely possible Metrolinx will come back and say, no, I'm sorry, this isn't an option. We're not going to do this. Uh, we already have the RFP going out and our timelines are too tight and uh, we can't change on that. Um, you know, the question then becomes, if Metrolinx says no, what's council's next move? Will they turn around and say, well, then we don't want LRT or will they say, OK, well, we tried. You know, that's my point, Ryan. I think it. I think it's so they can say, "Hey, we tried," and you know, we're not going to bail on this just because HSR is not running it. I mean, that's certainly not a deal breaker. I, I wouldn't think so. I mean, I, I would hope not, but I do think it's significant that some of the most enthusiastic supporters of this motion have been councillors who have been not in support of LRT. You know, and I and I have to. Wonder so you think it's a delay they, tactic? Well, I think there's. I think there's some opportunity for some potential for mischief here, and I think for people who you know 
would like to see the LRT not go ahead. I think they see the the, the opportunity to uh, to really kind of throw a wrench in the whole mess. Uh, you said before when we talked about this earlier that uh, you didn't have confidence in the city's ability to run this. Uh, is that HSR specifically or council? Not HSR at all. In fact, um, you know, uh, Sarah Mayo at the uh, um, SPRC has done some uh, really good comparative research. The HSR is one of the most cost-effective transit uh, organizations in Ontario. And uh, unfortunately, part of the reason for that is that it's, it's a, a function of necessity because they've been starved for funding for 30 years now. Um, I, I don't have a lack of confidence in the HSR. I have a lack of confidence in uh, if this is left up to council, I'm not, I don't have a lot of confidence that council will see fit to fund this properly. So, How does HSR have that confidence then? Uh, I'm not too sure what you mean. Sorry. Well, you said you don't have the the confidence that uh, the council has the ability to give HSR what it needs in order to run this right. So then, why would HSR have the confidence to run this right? Well, it's not HSR that's op- that's asking for this to change. It's the ATU. It's the union. Right. Right. So, so I mean, it's, I mean, I don't know what's happening internally, but certainly publicly, the HSR hasn't taken a position on this. You know, it would be imprudent of them to do so. Uh, what I would say, but they want that, to unionize them as public employees, not unionize them as private employees. That's the issue. I think that's the issue. Yeah, and uh, you know, and there there's some philosophical reasons why I think that is a, a sensible position for the ATU to take. Uh, I mean, the, the workers are going to be unionized either way, but when they're public employees, there's an additional level of accountability to the public mm. that you know maybe there's a perception that that's not there if you're a, an employee of a private consortium. Uh, it means that LRT gets more tightly integrated with uh, the HSR's conventional operations and you get better coordination between the two. I mean, there are some there are some good arguments in favor of doing it and I think the HSR will operate LRT uh, effectively uh, within the constraints of what kind of resources they're given to do that. And my concern is I want to make sure that the decision on how many resources they receive, whoever decides to operate it, is a decision that is um, that's locked in by Metrolinks, and that it doesn't become something that council has an opportunity to kind of siphon money out of if they want to spend money on something else. Mm. Uh, the fact that TTC operates theirs, uh, is that reason to let HSR operate this one? Uh, well, TTC already had uh, institutional experience operating rapid transit systems of various kinds, so it's a much easier argument to make for them. With the HSR, if they're going to operate LRT, they're going to have to essentially hire and staff with people uh, managers and employees who know how to build and maintain and, and operate and run an LRT system. That that uh, sort of institutional knowledge doesn't exist right now. You know, whereas if you hire a consortium, that, that company is already operating LRT systems. They already know how to do it. So that's an issue where the HSR would then have to step up and you'd have to make sure that whoever was in charge of that had the competence to bring in the right people and get the right training so that they're ready to do Again, I think it's something that they can, it's, it's a problem that they can solve if it comes to that. Ryan McGrill has been with us, editor of Raise the Hammer. Motion for the HSR to run LRT in Hamilton has passed. Ryan, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Thanks a lot. It's a real pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You might remember uh, earlier this week uh, on the Bill Kelly Show, Bill had the mayor of uh, Burlington on, and he was talking about the Association of uh, uh, Ontario Municipalities and how they are in, obviously, uh, dire need for money for infrastructure. So uh, because the premier 
uh, a while ago said, you know, I'm interested in talking to uh, municipalities and mayors and such about new tools to raise revenue. Uh, some came up with ideas. You might remember uh, Mayor John Tory in Toronto, they, they brought up tolls. Uh, and uh, Mayor Goldring uh, of Burlington has brought up adding an extra point to the HST, raising it to 14%, with that percentage of revenue going specifically to infrastructure, to highways and such. Uh, that was turned down by the Premier, saying that, quote, she's trying to help people get ahead. I wish she had thought of that before she ventured down uh, uh, the Green Energy Act path and uh, took uh, uh, all of the decision-making away from municipalities and ended up where we are now and uh, overextending ourselves and having to pay for it for uh, 30 years. Uh, $37 billion wasted, according to the Auditor General, on this whole scam. No one's against green energy here. We're just uh, looking for accountability, that's all. Uh, so now, uh, of course, uh, the Premier has changed her tune and says, no, we're trying to get people to, to get ahead. We're not raising any taxes. Let's bring in Christine Van Gein, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, the Ontario Director. She is with us now. Hello, Christine. How are you today? I'm great. How are you, Scott? Thank you. Uh, I'm great, and uh, thank you for taking the, uh, the time to join us. It's good to see that Kathleen Wynne's now sticking up for us, the taxpayer. I guess this is all to help us with our electricity bills. Is, is that why she's sticking up for us now, do you think? Uh, I think she's she's sticking up for us because she finally met a tax hike she didn't like, or at least she didn't like the timing of this one. Um, but you know, this is this premier is no tax fighting here. If you just look at her record, it shows that this is someone who, if she was really interested in helping people get ahead, she wouldn't have pursued the policies that her government has pursued for over a decade. That includes Green Energy Act that has led to um, off-peak electricity prices increasing by more than 150 um, percent. She wouldn't have implemented all the new taxes. These are the run-in-the-mill tax hikes we see almost every we see every few months now with wine, beer, tobacco, uh, the aviation uh, fuel tax. Um, she created a whole new tax bracket for for high-income earners, essentially redefining what it means to be a high-income earner in Ontario, uh, and um, just pursuing a whole lot of policies that make life in Ontario uh, very very unaffordable. So for her to turn around just a few months before an election when she's deeply unpopular and, and act as if she's some champion for taxpayers, I mean, it's laughable. Uh, you know, it, was, it wasn't that long ago she was asking everybody for ideas and, uh, and new revenue tools, which, you know, usually means a tax, uh, to help out in this way. Why is she turning a blind eye to these suggestions? Well, I mean, I, you're exactly right. Less than one year ago, at this exact same conference where this HST tax hike was in, proposed by municipalities, she said to the mayors, bring me ideas for tax hikes. Or she calls them revenue tools, of course, that the, the politicians seek for uh, for tax increases. Uh, so, you know, back a year ago, they were looking at um, allowing other municipalities to impose a, a land transfer tax. Uh, currently, Toronto is the only city that imposes a double land transfer tax. So, um, you know, if if you ask, they're going to bring you ideas, right? You ask politicians to bring the ideas, bring ideas for tax hikes. Most of them are going to bring you ideas, and that's exactly what's happened. So, um, for her to then say no to this idea when she is the one who asked municipalities to propose tax hikes. I mean, give me a break. She she's not a champion for for the public. She's not a champion for affordability. She's a champion for her own reelection. 
Uh, this is the same regarding the tolls with Toronto and, and their scenario. I mean, she sort of led them to believe like it would be okay. They started to do the legwork and then basically said no to them for the same reasons, no? Yeah, no, that's exactly what happened in, in Toronto. Mayor Tory proposed tolling uh, some of the highways leading into the city. It's a, a quite a very unpopular idea within Toronto. And, and the premier uh, the premier had told the mayor. She had winked at him basically saying, propose tolls, and I, I might say okay. And then he says no. He, he proposes it, and she says no, and, and she gets to call herself some hero when we know that largely – the biggest unaffordability issue in Ontario is electricity, and that is solely in the hands of this this government. That is solely their responsibility, and uh, they, they've created a real crisis in this province. She's not looking out for affordability issues. I've heard absolutely nothing about the whole Tilsonburg scenario and the Siemens plant closing, which was constructing uh, wind turbines. Has the government said anything about this? Um, yeah, I, I think that they they made some comments after after the plant closed and and have said that it doesn't have to do with the the wind um, the the LR uh, the long large renewable procurement uh, the second round of that not going ahead. Um, uh, but you know, if you're if the government has said that a big order for windmills isn't going to take place, and and I'm not advocating that it should have. I I think that that was going to cost consumers even more. But the problem with, with the government kind of talking out of both sides of their mouths is um, they promised us that these manufacturing jobs were going to leave parts of Ontario but be replaced by uh, new economy, green economy jobs. And um, Tilsonburg was touted as this, as this example of that. And uh, we see where we've ended up. Well, again, this was, uh, this was supposed to create jobs over and above Ontario. So, you know, if Ontario cancels one of its projects, how does that affect, you know, us selling this technology and all this great stuff worldwide? Well, the thing with the Tilsonburg plant was a lot of the, the turbines that they were making there had become outdated. So um, they were making smaller blades that uh, really is, is old technology that we, we aren't that, that isn't kind of where people are going now where they're able to make much much larger larger turbine blades. Um, but that's part of the problem with the whole refinancing of the um, of, of the electricity sector in Ontario. They, they re, they're allowing us to, to have this um, this short term seventeen percent rebate on bills by um, stretching out the contracts over a larger term. Yeah. It provides us with some savings in the short term, but the thing is that that, that technology only lasts um, at a maximum of 20 years, and now we're going to be paying it for over 30 years. So it's kind of like um, continuing your car loan payments after your car is in the scrap heap. Yeah, really. Uh, where uh, where are they making these things now, or do um, we or do we not just need we we just don't need anymore? Uh, I'm I'm not sure what, where the largest producer of, of turbine blades are, but. Um, Certainly, you need to keep up to date with the technology if you want to play in that market. And um, the Tilsonburg plant wasn't. Uh, it, it had become sort of the the um, the more outdated technology. It was it was the smaller place. Uh, the uh, Association of Ontario Municipalities said they wanted the one percent increase uh, in order to go to uh, infrastructure, roads, bridges, and such. Um, that being said. Uh, do we have any guarantee that the money would actually go to that? I mean, haven't we heard this tune a million times? I can think of the tire tax. I mean, wh- wh- how do we guarantee this money goes to where they say it's going to go? 
Oh yeah, and you know what the the tire recycling charges were all going to? They were they were being used. Uh, the money was being used to. Um, there was this whole whole scandal a few months ago of some of that that tire money was being used to buy tickets to liberal fundraising golf tournaments. So, um, you know, if you if you want to do something like that, I have a big I have a there's a big question mark of if the money will be allocated where politicians say it will be. Um, I'm all for transparency in how tax money is spent, but um, giving municipalities more money when when their revenue has grown faster than both population growth and GDP growth. Uh, I mean, you have to take their their demands for more money with a grain of salt. Uh, do you think we will see more of this sort of uh, uh, lack of taxation attitude as we get towards to more towards the election? What more bond bonds can they throw at us? Uh, you know, I think that it's it's going to be less about cutting taxes and more about providing more entitlements to people. So um, the the government released a while ago this so-called universal daycare policy that was going to um, see the creation of new new childcare spaces um, at a cost, by the way, of over forty thousand over forty thousand dollars a space um, because government efficiency, I guess. Um, so we're going to see things like that. And in the last budget, of course, there was the proposal to um, provide um, pharmaceutical care for people aged uh, right. 25 and under. So I just think we're going to see an expansion of, uh, of entitlement programs um, in, the, in the face of the financial accountability officer uh, in Ontario saying just this week that um, the government is not going to meet its balanced budget targets if it doesn't reduce spending or increase taxation, increase revenue, revenue, right? Like revenue is is tax tax revenue. Where is the discussion going that the province is having with doctors? They have peace with the teachers, it appears, through the next election, but obviously uh, there there seems to be issues, well, continually brewing with the doctors in the healthcare system. Yeah, uh, the, the... Ontario Medical Association, the, the battle between them and the province is continuing, and um, I don't see an end in sight. But, uh, you know, this this government relies on, on large public sector unions for, for re-election, and I, I think that those are the unions that we're seeing uh, get these get deals. So the doctors don't fall into that category? I don't think that they fall into the same category as the, as the unions that make up the Working Families Coalition. Uh, how do you think the summer has gone for uh, the Wynn government? Things have been relatively quiet, which I guess is common. Everybody's uh, out in their constituencies and such. Uh, what sort of preparation do you think is going on for the next election? Well, you know, with the changes to the financing uh, legislation in the last session, um, which meant that politicians can't can't attend, really can't attend their own fundraisers, um, and uh, there are big limits on corporate donations now in Ontario. Um, it's something that a lot of people had called on, called for for a long time, but it it really is is handicapping the the provincial government's ability to fundraise. Um, but at the same time, it also it also sort of damages the ability of the opposition parties to fundraise. So um, I guess we'll see what the party coffers look like closer to election time. Um, but but I think that they've given themselves a challenge. Stabilization in electricity bills. Do you think this is keeping Ontarians calm? Um, I honestly, I don't think a lot of people are fooled by the the tricks that this government has pulled uh, with the with this seventeen percent reduction in electricity bills that they um, they're they're trying to achieve. The um, financial accountability officer 
said that this is going to add, uh, I think it's $1.4 billion per year in interest charges as a result of this this um, short-term reduction in costs to consumers. So in the long term, we're going to pay a lot more. And I think that it was well publicized that um, that this is a short-term ploy to calm very angry voters um, in the run-up to an election. Uh, the fact that this Tilsonburg plant closed because it wasn't making state-of-the-art turbines and the fact that, you know, a lot of the ones that are spinning around in Ontario now uh, came from there, uh, and you've said this before, but is this accurate that, you know, within 10 years these things will be outdated? I think they're outdated today. I mean, right now you can you can build much larger and much more productive turbines. And that's part of why the plant is um, is closing in Tilsonburg. I mean, that's the part of the statement I think that the um, the company made itself was that the demand, the market demand is for larger blades now. Um, so is that what we should be doing? Should we be investing even more into this? No. So I think that there have been so many problems with the government um, getting involved in this green technology, and they don't seem to be able to get involved in it in a way that ends up with contracts that are affordable for consumers. So the contracts for wind and solar across the province in a lot of those cases were, were well above market rates and their contracts for, for 20 years, which is the max life, life cycle for those, that equipment. And, uh, and now we're going to be paying for it for even longer. I don't, I don't think we should be building, um, building more of it, especially when uh, we know we are exporting excess electricity to the jurisdictions just south of the border that we directly compete with in manufacturing. Uh, I've been talking to some energy uh, experts that have said that uh, they should not have gone the route of wind turbines. They should have been investing more money in solar, which they have, I guess, as well. Have you heard those those stories as well, that, that uh, solar is more cost-effective than wind? Yeah. Uh, solar, the, the contracts for solar were not as... Uh, as bad as the contracts for wind. Um, the wind, I, I think we were paying even higher above market rates as a multiple than we were for, for solar. But I don't really agree with paying above market rates at all. It doesn't matter if you're paying twice market rate or, or three times market rate. I think you probably should try and pay market rate if you're going to be buying electricity. And in Ontario, um, it, for wind and solar, it was above for both. Christine Van Guyen has been with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Ontario Director. The Association of Ontario Municipalities this week wanted to see the HST raised on, uh, raised another point uh, so they could pay for infrastructure. The Premier said no. Christine, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Lots of chatter of late. Obviously, what happened in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, and the white supremacist movement that is growing not only there, but it seems to be uh, around the world. Uh, Neo-Nazis, KKK, uh, President uh, Donald Trump uh, trying to... uh, to level the playing field for both of these uh, or for these groups saying that uh, that both were uh, involved in uh, meaning uh, the demonstrators and the demonstrators that didn't uh, support the protesters, the neo-Nazis and the KKK all clashing. Uh, President Trump said that both were to blame 
uh, which I'm having a really hard time understanding, considering, take this analogy back to World War II, were both Hitler and all of our allies to blame for what happened? No, it was good against evil. It's not about statues, it's about good versus evil. It's about neo-Nazis, the KKK, and white supremacists against everybody else, isn't it? Uh, so should there be uh, similarities drawn there? I I'm not sure. This wasn't about fighting over statues. This is about white supremacy that the president doesn't seem to be uh, addressing in any way, other than, of course, the firing of Steve Bannon, which we'll wait and have to see how that plays out over the course of the afternoon. All right, so what kind of person becomes disenfranchised and becomes one of those people carrying a torch like we saw uh, last weekend in Charlottesville, Virginia. How do you become a neo-Nazi? How do you become a member of the KKK? What drives you there? Uh, let's talk to an ex-neo-Nazi that says the violence that took place in Virginia presents an opportunity for parents to address this issue of hate to youth. To talk more about all of this, Tony McAleer is with us, co-founder of board and uh, board chair of Life After Hate. And Tony is with us now. Hello, Tony. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, what is Life After Hate? Life After Hate is uh, an organization that started in 2009 as an online journal and in 2011 became a uh, registered not-for-profit founded by uh, five or six former members and leaders of the white supremacist movement to help people leave the place where we once were. How did you get to the place where you once were? It's, I mean, that's no, there's no short answer. Um, that's okay. That, but, but, but ultimately, um, you know, people, the ideology isn't, like ISIS, isn't enough to draw people into it. And if people have a, a healthy sense of um, identity, um, healthy relationships, that kind of thing, they're, they're sort of immune from the ideology. The ideology is wrapped around a much more seductive pull that is used by leaders in these groups um, that, that's very manipulative. And I guess the best example I can give you is a letter that we received this week from a concerned parent who said, hey, I, my 18-year-old son, he's got uh, Asperger's syndrome, and he's up to his eyeballs in this white nationalist stuff online and everything. And um, she says what frightened her, frightens her, is that this community has embraced and accepted her son in a way that mm. no one ever has in, in his life. Mm. So we can try and argue with that child about, um, you know, facts about the Holocaust or immigration or whatever. What we, what we have to do is deal with the child, the, the, the draw. So you have a, a child that's, that feels isolated a little bit on the outside, drawn in and, and from the loneliness. And I know in my own journey what I found was I found a sense of power where I had felt powerless. I found a sense of attention and acceptance where I had felt invisible before. I found it was a place where I got all of these sort of human needs met in the most unhealthiest of ways. Um, it doesn't matter that these needs were met in the most unhealthiest of ways? You don't see that at that point? Well, because these are not conscious decisions. I'm going to join these guys because they make me feel powerful. I feel powerful, and I, which makes me feel better than feeling weak. And so it, it just feels better. And, and we then rationalize and, and, you know, tell ourselves all kinds of lies to, to make it fit. And for me, the ideology gave me a permission 
uh, and a framework with which to be very angry and very violent. And, and I, you know, human beings don't do anything without a payoff. And so when people join this group, like someone said to me, Tony, you seem like a nice guy. How did you lose your humanity? Because I was completely disconnected from my humanity. And I said to that person, I didn't lose my humanity. I traded it for acceptance and approval until there was nothing left. I chose to do everything that I did. I don't ever blame my childhood on on anything like that. But the choices that I made gave me things that I needed at a deep psychological level. So they felt right in the time, even though they were completely wrong. So this becomes a vehicle for your anger, an outlet for your anger. Absolutely. The whole thing is driven by shame. You know, and it's shame is an interesting thing. And I, we're not talking healthy shame when you do something wrong and your cheeks kind of glow and you, mm-hmm. feel, you feel bad. We're talking about, you know, coming out of childhood or adolescence with a feeling that you're not good enough that you're less than that uh, that you're unlovable that you that you're weak you're invisible you're you're not smart enough not pretty enough and we live our lives in reaction to that and we try to compensate for that uh, John Bradshaw who wrote a great book called healing the shame that binds you said for him uh, shame is the root of all addiction there's numerous books out there Wow that's powerful that, that say shame is the root of violence there is no violence without shame driving it. Hmm. And there's a whole number of antisocial outcomes that, can, can op- that we can go to as human beings operating from this place of toxic shame. Racism and violent extremism, and this is, is research to, to prove this, um, is, is probably one of the most virulent places that it can go. But there's lots of places. So <clears throat> we, we approach this with compassion. And the idea is to work with people to try and heal the shame, reconnect them to their humanity. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean we don't hold people accountable for what, they, what they've done and for their actions and the things that they've said. We don't forget that. Um, and we, we um, despise the ideology, we despise the activity, but we recognize that there is a human being inside, and they can come back because we've helped hundreds. Nobody's born like this. Uh, how old were you when you got involved? Um, 15, 16 and then I was kind of really fully into it at 19, and I was in it, uh, you know, from beginning to end, about 15 years. And what, 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 what was the turning point? What made, you, what made you turn it around? Well, I was at a place in my life, you know, when I was 22, 23. And I How was, old are you now, if you don't mind me asking, Tony? Um, 49. Okay. So this is in the, uh, the early 90s. and. Mm-hmm. By then, I was—I had ran a racist phone line. Had gone to the Supreme Court of Canada. Doug Christie was my lawyer, who was Zondo's lawyer, and I was very connected to the Heritage Front and everything happening in Toronto. And I believed that that at the age of 23, I'd be dead or in jail by the time I was 30 as a white revolutionary. And I stockpiled assault weapons and all of that kind of stuff. Then, at 23, I became a father, and I remember being in the in the delivery room and this little baby girl's little scrunchy face and she hasn't opened her eyes yet and Hmm. she opens her eyes and my face is the first picture that her brain's going to take and for the first time since I couldn't remember when I connected to another human being and in that connection began it didn't happen right away began a thawing process and I had a a son 15 months later and and with him I was able to um, parent him the way I always wanted to be parented, which was very self-therapeutic for me. And the beautiful thing about children is they're not capable 
of harming us. It's safe to love a child. It's safe hmm. to open up. And the reason that we close up is because we, it's painful. But it's a safe place where there is no chance of pain. They're not capable of rejection, shaming, ridicule, any of that stuff. At least not for the teenagers. Then they do that for a couple of years and come back to normal. But that was, it's compassion that they offer. And the Jewish mentor who sort of did the same thing for me later on, I didn't know he was Jewish, I was in my first counseling session with him telling him um, about my history. And he starts smiling at me. And I go, this is odd. wasn't expecting this. Why are you smiling? And he, he leans in and he says, you know, I was born Jewish, right? Hmm. And he, he was a friend of mine before I didn't know. And, um, of course, and receiving compassion from someone who we don't feel we deserve it from, from someone who we had dehumanized, it really messed with my head because here's someone who loves me, wants to heal me, sees the human inside me when I can't see it myself when I look in the mirror. And here I was, someone who had once advocated for the annihilation of him and his people really powerful um, experience, um, not an idea, it was an experience that really opened things up. And that's the power of compassion. When we're compassionate with another human being, and it doesn't mean we don't hold them accountable, when we're compassionate with another human being, we hold up a mirror to them and allow them to see their humanity reflected back at them. And when they can start to see their humanity and recognize it within themselves, we can then recognize the humanity in others, and it changes everything. Uh, we're with uh, Tony Macleer, co-founder co uh, and board chair of Life After Hate. He's a former neo-Nazi who turned his life around. Uh, Tony, you talked about how it was monumental for you having children uh, and, and just the idea of raising them differently than you were. How are you a different parent than your parents? Well, my father, um, I came from a British immigrant family, uh, grew up in Vancouver, middle class, went to private school and and uh, all of that, so I, I didn't, there was nothing wanting. I didn't have violence in the home, but my dad wasn't around. He was, a, he was a, as a psychiatrist, working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, and the last thing he wanted to do when he got home was hear someone else's problems. So, and your dad was a psychiatrist. Oh, yeah. That, that's, often I say that's the whole reason right there. All joking aside. Why, why um, would you say that? Just because, because, of the, just because of the work hours and the fact that he didn't spend much time with you? Well, there's, there's all kinds of anecdotal stories about uh, psychiatrist kids being messed up. I often tell the joke. Really? We all know about the cobbler's kids that go to school with holes in their shoes. What do you think the psychiatrist kid goes to school? <laughs> oh, my. So, anyway, I interrupted. So, what are you doing differently? So, I mean, my, my children are 25 and 26 now, but um, I, I was at all my son's hockey practices, and I was very involved and active and spent a ton of time with, with my children, um, you know, I got to buy them the toys I always wanted, and it was a very therapeutic process. By the time they were two and four, four and six, um, I was in a situation where I was a full-time single father. And, you know, for the first time in my life, I was really making decisions for someone other than myself, because I was a complete narcissist. Yeah. I was a complete attention whore and didn't care who I harmed in the process of, of getting that ego boost of uh, attention and that false sense of, of power. But... I got all of those things in a very healthy way, being a single parent, and it, I think it's grossly unfair um, that, that as a single father of two kids, I was heaped with praise. It was like, oh my God, this is so wonderful. If I was a woman, I wouldn't have had that same experience. So uh, to all the single mothers out there, um, I recognize that, and 
and, and honor the, the struggle you go through because I went through it myself, although obviously differently. But you know, but I but I was able to get those those things in a very positive way. And I remember reading this quote from a guy who helped people leave gangs, and he said, "How do you get people to leave a gang? It's simple. We find them another gang." And um, the children helped me in in terms of finding another another tribe. What do your kids say? How much do they know about your past? What do they say about your past? They know they know all about my past, and I've had uh, I've had my kid come to talks I've given at high schools and stuff like that. So they know of my past. They remember some of my past, but they know I'm not my past, and they they understand the the transformation of the, the internal um, journey and the healing work that that I've gone through. You know, because we can't always. When we go and do that journey inside, we can't always see how how it uh, reflects in the rest of the world, but I know it, it transformed the relationships that I had with them, and that's very important. And it's, it's important to remember that we don't come into the world like this, and and that, uh, you know, when the person that's carrying the torch with the angry face, they didn't come into the world like that. Somewhere, somewhere along the line, um, some sort of dysfunction happened that left them feeling... Um, you know, on the outside of things, you know, not not feeling good about themselves, and and they stumble into this place where they feel at home with their their anger and their hatred. And I, you know, I don't take the ideology at all lightly. This ideology always ends up in murder, decade after decade, um, generation after generation, and in Canada as well as the United States. So it's it's important that we we challenge and stand up and and communicate that these values aren't our values and we don't want them in our society. But at the same time, naming, shaming, if shame is the, is the source of the problem with these individuals, right. shaming mm. is not the answer. And violence certainly isn't, isn't the answer. I mean, I've watched this thing escalate from UC Berkeley to Portland, then to Charlottesville. If violence was the answer, it would be shrinking, but it's not. These groups thrive on, on violence, conflict, and media attention. Uh, what advice do you have for parents who think their kids are going down this road? I think, I think for parents, I think you need to have an open, honest dialogue with your children. I think you need to um, create a safe space and a non-judgmental space where you can talk to your child about these issues and talk to them about what's going on and be curious, be, honest, be truly curious with your child and, and where they're at and make the time um, to connect with them, because if you're truly curious and non-judgmental, they'll tell you. They'll tell you stuff, hmm. and you can ask them where, where, how do you see yourself in this world? How do you, how do you view the world? What's the lens through which you see things? What do you, what do you feel about what happened in, in Charlottesville? Um, and if you keep that open dialogue going, and it's not easy, you know, and sometimes you might need to have help to facilitate getting that going. Um, you'll be able to detect, I think, fifth when you don't have that relationship with their child, when they're five or six hours a night in their room uh, gaming or going going down the rabbit hole online, you know, by the time you notice their haircut and the tiki torch, it, it yeah. might be a little too late. How do you get there? I mean, I, we've, I've talked to many experts about this, and obviously the whole communications thing, and, and a lot of it's around sexuality and, and, and sex education and, su- and such. You can't just start talking to your kid about this at 14. You've got to develop this re- relationship right from the get-go. That being said, 
uh, Tony, how do you reach those ones who were where you were? How do they come to you? How do they get there? And and if they don't have an epiphany like you did with your kids, are they gonna are they gonna arrive in the same place you did? Some, some well, they will they will get they will spit out of the movement at some point eventually because it the whole thing is so dysfunctional and it's all based on fantasy. And when fantasy meets reality, um, you know disillusionment kicks in. And part of the strategy that we do with our online messaging and counter narrative campaigns is to provoke. Um, Disillusionment. You know, the, if you go to a website at Life After Hate or have some public service announcement video clips, one of them which won an Emmy, which you know we talk about no judgment, just help. We hate the ideology, we despise the the activity, but we don't despise the human being, and we create a safe space and communicate that we've created a safe space for them to 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 get out and and um, you know even you know to use an analogy. You know, in the offensive in Mosul in Iraq, you know, before that, that battle went on, they created a corridor for, for people to leave and to get out to defuse the situation. And I think we have to offer a way back. Um, and that, those, that offer comes with conditions and accountability. But we have to offer a way back for, for these people who have gone down this rabbit hole and found themselves in a dark place. Because the longer they stay there, the, the darker it gets. It, it takes so much energy. I, you know, I was going to say that. I was going. I was going to say that. I mean, it seems like a lot of work. You have to be very organized. Like you know, it, it's a lot of uh, attention to be to be this way. Absolutely. So you never you never see, um, you know, unlike uh, a regular political party or a regular faith or a church, you you regularly see people that are in there for a lifetime. You rarely see people that are in these movements for a lifetime. Hmm. And when you do see them that have been in there for a lifetime, um, what you find is they're tired. You can see the physical toll. Yeah. That, like, they're like burnt out husks of human yeah. beings that are, that are just, all they have left is their anger. Um, and so often um, community groups are working on the preventive. How do we prevent kids from getting in? We also work on how do we accelerate the disillusionment. If, if the lifespan in the movement hmm. is 15 years and we hmm. can get someone to drop out after five or six, that's still nine or ten years of harm reduction that we're, that we're doing. So. Uh, we don't have much time left, Tony. What do you think about when you look back at how your life was and how it is now? Are you at peace with everything? Yeah, I've, you know, the hardest thing for me was to, to forgive myself for the things that I'd done and and forgiving the self seems like it's very self-serving, but the more I can have compassion and forgiveness for myself, the more I diminish my capacity to do harm in the world. And it's about um, it's about the people around me. I do it for the people around me, not necessarily for for myself. But I still, even though I've forgiven myself, I still hold myself accountable for the harm that I've done to individuals and communities. And that's why I volunteered to do the work that I do with life today. Wow, good for you. What an uh, an incredible story, and I thank you for sharing it with us. Tony McAleer has been with us, co-founder, board chair of Life After Hate. The website, uh, lifeafterhate.org, Tony? Yes. All right, lifeafterhate.org to find out more. Tony, a former ex-neo-Nazi who, of course, has turned his life around and helps others do the same. Tony, fabulous story. Uh, Congratulations. Good luck. Keep up the great work. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.